You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious. Scurvy Legs, Nikita, Brendan, Kruger, MD, Torso, Big Beard, Schmarls, Josiah, Jack, Logan, Cannon Monkey, Lost Again, The Navigator, Axios, Pinches, The Knight of Dampier, Wit, Pablo, Willie P, Governor Root, Gin-soaked Jim, Ward, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Drunken Deck, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And, of course, our quartermasters, James, Hunter, and Birdsong. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. We've been talking a lot lately about the English. English pirates and interlopers and slave merchants. And that's honestly just kind of how it's going to be for a while. There are going to be a few prominent French and Dutch and Ottoman and American and Chinese pirates in the future... But the golden age of piracy is really an English story. We can, though, thank a Dutchman for it. If you're feeling metaphorical, maybe a flying Dutchman. I'm talking about William III, King of England. His policies directly influenced, or if we were going to be bold about it, we could even say created the golden age of piracy. Let me take you back to the summer of 1688 immediately prior to the Glorious Revolution. William of Orange had just received the invitation to invade, and he was amassing his invasion force. It was that August, when London was ablaze with talk of invasion and preparations for warfare, that was when William Phipps arrived with a staggering amount of treasure in the hold of his ship. He was returning from the West Indies, and his treasure-hunting expedition on the wreck of La Nuestra Señora de la Concepción. There are those who would tell you that the 1715 wreck of the Spanish treasure galleon on the coast of Florida is the most important windfall in pirate history. I mean, I might tell you that at some point in the future, but it's not true. La Nuestra Señora de la Concepción just, in my opinion, ekes out a win. 
That was the prize that set off the golden age of piracy, as well as the careers of a number of famous pirates, notably at least William Kidd and Henry Every. So today we're going to look at the largest and most direct of those repercussions. This is episode 195, London Town. I can only imagine what it must have been like for William Phipps when he arrived in London in 1688. Here he was with over 200,000 pounds sterling in Spanish silver. Here he was with this almost unbelievable fortune intended for the King of England, and Phipps went almost unnoticed. His patron, the Duke of Albemarle, noticed. He hosted him at his estate and took his cut of almost 50,000 pounds. But the king and most of his court just passed Phipps on by. They were busy, of course. I mean, they were freaking out. William III was clearly massing a fleet intended to invade England. Parliament and way too many prominent lords were in open rebellion against King James. King Louis over in France was making really loud noises about a really big war. They knew that William Phipps had arrived with that pile of money, and they would happily take that money to fund the war, but right now was no time for ceremony. I can't help but wonder if the Duke of Albemarle, who was usually one step ahead of the game, I can't help but wonder if he counseled William Phipps to hold back, you know, wait a month or so to go see the king, because within the month William of Orange invaded England, and with almost no fighting, James II was fleeing for exile in France, and William III sat the throne. Now, as you might imagine, King William was pretty busy for those first few weeks, but he did find time to acknowledge William Phipps. And he must have been just ecstatic to find out that there was this skull-duggerous colonial waiting in the wings with about 125,000 pounds sterling in hard specie for the king. Any of us would be happy, I imagine, to get 125 large, but William especially must have been gleeful here because when he came to the throne, he learned that England was broke. Like, really broke. If there's one thing that every Stuart monarch of England had in common, it was their inability to manage money. However, even though that 125,000 pounds was worth a lot more in 1688 than it is today, it still wasn't enough to just solve England's financial woes. But if they invested it, and invested it well, it could turn their fortunes around. But that wasn't a job for the king. To see that job done, William turned to one of the richest and most powerful families in London. The Hublon family. The Hublon were of French extraction originally. They were Huguenots that fled France in the 1660s. Notably, they married into an even more wealthy and more powerful Huguenot family who fled Flanders back when Queen Elizabeth sat the throne. Here in 1688, there were three Hublon brothers that ran the family's affairs. The eldest was James Hublon, followed by Abraham and John. All three men served in Parliament at different times and ran large business interests. But they were exiles there in London, despite all of their wealth and influence. 
They held no lands in England, no titles. Presumably, they could get a posting at court if they really wanted one, but it wouldn't be on any of the important councils, just some kind of bureaucratic job, which would not do. Instead, they invested their money in a number of joint stock companies, including a quaint little startup you may have heard of called the English East India Company. When William III received his windfall from William Phipps, he took one look around London and decided that these were the guys. This was who he would choose to handle his giant pile of Spanish silver. Essentially, he gave those three brothers all the money. It's a bit more complicated, but that's basically how it went down. He just handed it to them and told them to take it and turn it into a lot more money. He needed to see the broken economy of England fixed and hopefully earn enough to build a navy to rival France. That was the big issue here. England's navy was in poor shape. They were, after all, broke, and three successive Anglo-Dutch wars will take its toll on naval forces. That's, well, that's why England keeps losing naval battles in the Nine Years' War. They didn't have a lot of ships. Those Hublon brothers, as you might imagine, were more than happy to take up this mission on behalf of the crown. And to see it through, they founded the Bank of England. And if you want to picture the Bank of England, I mean the, the physical bank, you could look it up online, or you could just watch the Harry Potter movies. The Bank of England is Gringotts. I mean, almost exactly. The site of that initial Bank of England on Threadneedle Street in London was the Hublon family home. It was a mansion in the center of London, but the three brothers decided to convert it into the inaugural site of the Bank of England. The youngest brother, John Hublon, was put in charge. He was named the inaugural governor of the Bank of England, and the other two brothers... James and Abraham Hublon, had business interests elsewhere. Their very first order of business, though, in running the Bank of England, was to infuse a huge amount of money into the English East India Company. Abraham Hublon, the middle brother, facilitated that transfer of wealth. He was in a good position to do so as he sat on the board of the English East India Company. Remember a few episodes back when I told you that the English East India Company was a big company, yeah, but not that big. They were in the we-gotta-get-this-nutmeg-to-market business, not the let's-go-conquer-India business. Well, all of that is about to change, at least begin to change, here with this infusion of cash. That's not going to have any immediate effects that we will feel, but keep it in mind. I mean, the East India Company and the Indian Ocean are pretty important to the pirates of the round. But as for those immediate effects, for today, I want to focus on the eldest brother, James Hublon. James was... Well, I just... I can't begin to imagine what his life must have been like. He was an intellectual, or... Rather, he saw himself as an intellectual. He was patron to a bunch of actual intellectuals. And we're talking big names here. 
diarists like Samuel Pepys and John Evelyn, scientists like, well, the whole of the Royal Society of London, you know, Robert Boyle, who kind of invented modern chemistry, or, oh, Mr. Haley, I see you named a comet after yourself. Good show, old chap. What about Isaac Newton? He knew all of them, and they all knew him. Of course, James Hublone was not their equal, intellectually. He was too busy being the mayor of London, and an MP, and director of the newly founded Bank of England, which was a distinct position from governor, as his brother was. But James Hublone was the kind of man who would have all of those famous names over for dinner. I cannot imagine a more impressive and fascinating and stimulating dinner. You know, Isaac, why don't you tell us about this new discovery of yours? What did you call it again? Mm, physics? And yeah, if I'm being honest here, given the chance, I'd rather sit on the beach somewhere drinking rum, with the sound of a Spanish guitar playing in the background and a big hunk of roast cow over the bonfire, to spend my time with scurrilous pirates and women of low moral character. That sounds like a lot more fun to me, but of course... That's just me. I'm a, a Philistine. But there is an exception to that rule. There is one time when I would choose John Hublon's fancy dinner party with scientists and women of high moral character over a beachside barbecue. And that was when Hublon hosted a young man, courtesy of the Royal Society of London, who had only recently returned from a voyage round the world. Upon his return to England, William Dampier was a guest of everybody. Dampier, of course, had quite the story to tell. He had years of sailing with pirates and buccaneers, a, a voyage into the South Seas, and their crossing to Asia, which to England was still kind of a mystery at the time. He had tales of the Philippines and Indonesia. There was that landmass that William Dampier was still tentatively calling Australia's incognita. There was Vietnam and India and Madagascar. But William Dampier, despite all of these fantastic stories, well, he had nothing to show for it. His sea chest, what was supposed to be the seed money, his, you know, his fortune upon his return to England, was gone. The only object of any monetary value that he'd brought back with him was his slave, Jolie, from Mindanao, covered in tattoos. But upon his return to England, after only a few weeks, William Dampier had been forced to sell Jolie just to make ends meet. When Dampier got back to England, he had a life to get back to, and a, a wife to get back to. He was married to a woman named Judith, that he had not seen in twelve years. They were in their early twenties when they got married, and now they were closing in on forty. I mean, what does that even look like, that kind of reunion? Hello, you're, uh, you're Judith, right? You know, I think that, uh, I think we're married. Judith was working as a servant, while Dampier was out of the country, and Dampier made enough with the sale of Jeoli to a, a local theater company, as it happened, a company that would stage fantastical and not-at-all-accurate stories with this 
tattooed native as a centerpiece, but Dampier made enough to buy he and his wife a humble little home there in London. But that was all he had money for. Judith had to keep working to feed them. The house itself, it... well, it wasn't great. It lay on the bank of the Thames, which... Well, Diana and Michael Preston will give a better description of that than I could. They write in A Pirate of Exquisite Mind, quote, The Thames was full of rubbish and waste from industries like tanneries along the banks, which discharged into it their acrid vats of dog turds and urine used to soften leather. The river smelled horrible particularly when the ooze and its decaying contents were exposed at low tide. John Evelyn wrote, and here they quote John Evelyn, quote, Dirty and nasty it is at every ebb, so as next to the hellish smoke of the town there is nothing, doubtless, which does more to impair the health of its inhabitants. End quote. We could spend, if we really wanted to, an entire episode devoted to London Town and how unbelievably disgusting it was. They go on to tell us in A Pirate of Exquisite Mind that the birth rate in London was not enough to replenish the death rate. The only way that London managed to keep their population steady and growing was with immigrants to the city, who came there for good and better-paying jobs. But I can't imagine that Judith, who even though she was a servant and not at all wealthy, had been living in a fairly nice house, the house of her mistress, I can't imagine she was at all pleased with her newfound circumstances. I'm not even going to try to imagine what went through her head when her husband, I guess, when Dampier was so heartbroken at being forced to sell his tall and muscular, long-haired, tanned and tattooed slave boy, who had at the time been so worth the expense. All Dampier had to show for his twelve years of sailing off to earn his fortune was a pile of papers. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. Today could be the day a famous mobster met their end, or the first milestone for humans in space. Who knows what history today holds? Find out when you listen and subscribe to This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History wherever you get your podcasts. Now, I have trouble characterizing Judith in my head. We just don't know enough about her. I mean, it's not like she and Dampier ever had any kind of correspondence to refer to. It would be easy to portray her as, you know, kind of a shrew, right? 
Oh, you didn't make any money, but you managed to save a chest full of papers. And all you do day in and day out is pour over those old notes and cry over Jolie. What about me? I have needs too, you know, but... We don't know anything about the kind of relationship that she and Dampier had. And, you know, we don't know, but it's possible that Judith was involved in her husband's work, that she was fascinated by all of those papers. Considering the trends of literacy and the publishing market in English society, as well as William Dampier's pretty abysmal handwriting, it's even possible that Judith, you know, copied and compiled and edited his notes into a cohesive and readable work. At least, that's what William Dampier was getting up to. The only possession that he owned of any value at all was his notes, which he was turning into a book. And once he had a readable manuscript completed, he shopped it all around town. The Royal Society of London was intrigued in this work. Worldwide wind patterns were important, as were a number of the discoveries he made, but they weren't going to front the money to publish it. When Dampier went to that dinner party hosted by James Hublone, yeah, he was telling stories at the dinner table, but it was all in an attempt to sell his book. And it was at that dinner that he finally, after about a year of trying, when he succeeded. He finally had a patron, someone who was interested in putting up the money to see that work published. Now, it wasn't James Hublone, but the younger brother, the governor of the Bank of England, John Hublone. Did I mention earlier that John Hublone was also a Lord Commissioner of the Admiralty? No. Well, he was. And those maps of wind patterns were important. They were important to the Navy, to the war effort, to God and country. James Hublone wanted to see them published. In their biography of William Dampier, Diana and Michael Preston have an entire segment of the book entitled Celebrity. Once a new voyage round the world was making the rounds of London, William Dampier and Judith no longer had to worry about money. They were able to move away from their house on the Thames into a much better place in Soho. They were attending more and more fancy dinner parties. Dampier was spending most of his days at the coffee houses, which were the centers of social life in London. He wasn't doing it to sell his book, but rather to publicize it, to hype it up. Everyone wanted to hear William Dampier tell his stories. He even managed to negotiate a 10% royalty from the theater company that had bought Jolie. Not to tell Dampier's stories, they weren't going to do that, they wanted magic and romance, but for the mere right to use William Dampier's name on the playbill. That's the kind of fame that he achieved almost overnight. Now I have to avoid the temptation of turning this into a biography of William Dampier. There is a bigger story here today, but I do want to mention one little tangent. You'll recall that back in May 1688, the pirate ship Bachelor's Delight put in at Philadelphia after five years of roving. It was there that William Dampier's former commander, Edward Davis, and William Dampier's friend, Lionel Wafer, 
left Bachelor's Delight. They just handed the ship over to the crew who voted in George Rayner as their captain. From Philadelphia, with their sea chests in hand, Edward Davis and Lionel Wafer made their way down to Virginia. Davis used a good portion of his money to buy some land in Virginia, which was a good thing at just the right time. About a month later, on 22nd June 1688, Lionel Wafer, Edward Davis, and their two companions, one of them a slave, were arrested for piracy. They were subsequently tried and imprisoned. They languished away in that cell for two years, trying to secure a release, petitioning anyone who might listen. Finally, though, Dampier had the clout to give them the help they needed. He called in a number of favors, finally turning to his patron, John Hublon. As a naval official, John was interested to learn that Lionel Wafer had his own maps and his own charts and a diary full of flora and fauna all over the world. Those works would eventually be published, thanks to the same naval and intellectual channels that got Dampier published, as a buccaneer's atlas. Hublon petitioned the king, and he had a lot more weight to throw around than William Dampier. William III finally granted Edward Davis and Lionel Wafer a royal pardon. But there was a catch here. The money. Edward Davis got to keep his land, and they would receive some compensation from the crown a couple of years later. But nearly all of the money that they earned sailing on board Bachelor's Delight, their years of work and blood, their own blood and the blood of others, nearly all of that money was confiscated. Not by the king, at least it didn't go into royal coffers, but by Virginia. The colony of Virginia used it to found a college, the College of William and Mary. That is yet another pretty major institution founded and funded on pirate booty. What are we up to today? Is that three institutions? Why not kick it up to four? That major investment in the East India Company was paying dividends to the Hublon brothers and to the Bank of England, and thus to England itself. They were loaning out money at excellent rates, and in particular the Navy was benefiting. But they could do more, both to help out the Navy and England and line their own pockets. See, James Hublon, the eldest of the brothers, made most of his personal fortune in a trade with Iberia, with Spain and Portugal. He was a wine merchant, trading for Spanish and Portuguese wine. It treated him very well as an industry, but in recent months, Hublon had run into problems. Pirates. French privateers were an issue, especially in the Bay of Biscay once the war broke out. James Hublon, in a petition before the Admiralty, complained that, quote, French privateers off the coast of Portugal intercepted and took several English and Irish ships, end quote, which was not news to anyone. The Admiralty were well aware of that fact, especially since they'd just lost the Battle of Beachy Head. They were losing the war at sea. Officers were deserting the Navy in droves. Clear throats significantly. Oh, wait. Officers were deserting the Navy in droves. <clears throat> but they were helpless, as of yet, to do anything about it. 
The even bigger issue, though, for James Hublon, were Barbary pirates. Sally Rovers out of Morocco. Now, ever since Admiral Narborough put down Tunis and Tripoli back in 1671, the Barbary coast had been relatively quiet. But wouldn't you know it, as soon as the Nine Years' War broke out, suddenly Barbary pirates were everywhere. Naturally, the Ottoman Empire had nothing to do with it. They weren't part of this war. They hadn't declared war on anyone. The Barbary pirates just chose to attack exclusively English and Dutch and Spanish shipping. All of that, the French and Barbary raiders, had severely curtailed James Hublon's Siberian trade, along with a bunch of other merchants. And it looked like the Admiralty, the Navy, weren't going to do anything about it. So with this windfall of money from the crown, and the profits that it had earned for he and his brothers, James Hublon announced the formation of a joint stock company. As Lord Mayor of London and the Director of the Bank of England, and brother to the Governor of the Bank of England, who was also on the Admiralty Board, all of that made this joint stock company look like a pretty safe bet. A lot of people, once he announced the formation, put up money for this operation. The king put up money for this new company. Lords and ladies and captains of industry, we're, we're talking about the cream of English society. Now at first there was a lot of infrastructure to put in place. An army of accountants and lawyers, a board of directors, the the less sexy side of international trade corporations. But then there was their stock, what they were going to sell. What, what were they going to sell? Well, the king had a thought about that. Why not sell guns to our Spanish friends in the West Indies? As it happened, William III knew just the arms manufacturers back in Holland to supply all of the cargo there. Plus, you know, we are at war. The Spanish in America could use those guns in the fight against King Louis. It would be the patriotic thing to do, and let us not forget who handed you a giant pile of money. So they were going to sell guns. Muskets and pistols and shot and powder. You know, small arms, but also big guns and cannons. It... Well, the arms trade, believe it or not, wasn't the most profitable expedition ever conceived. They were ordered to sell those guns as cheaply as possible, not quite at cost, but only enough to cover their operating costs. So there was no profit to be made there, but there was a lot of news filtering back to England that a number of ships had been recently lost in the West Indies. Merchantmen and treasure ships that were carrying a lot of salvageable cargo. Ships that Hublon was now permitted to salvage once his job in America was done. The brothers Hublon knew, better than most in the world, exactly what kind of returns sunken treasure could afford them. So to that end, once all of those investors had put their money down for what Hublon was calling the Spanish Expedition, they had to acquire ships for their voyage. The first ship that Hublon bought was the Seventh Sun. Seventh Sun was what they called a pink. The name derives from the Dutch word pink, but it means pinched. A pink has a, 
very narrow stern, and a shallow draft. They were designed to ride high in the water and maneuver in very tight spaces, specifically for coral reefs. On this mission, Seventh Sun was to serve as the salvage ship, the ship that could get men and cargo to and from the wrecked vessels. But of course, a pink isn't a powerhouse. So to fill that gap, they bought two frigates, Dove and James. Now, Dove and James were sent over to Holland to buy all of the guns that would be sold on this mission, as well as the guns that would arm their own vessels. Dove and James were going to have thirty guns each. Seventh Son was only going to carry eight, but the flagship was going to carry forty. Now, I don't think that William Dampier was on board yet. I mean, actually on board the ship. He was still in London enjoying coffee houses and dinner parties. In fact, his old friend Lionel Wafer had joined him by this point. Wafer's book had not yet been published, but Dampier's was flying off the shelves. They would tell tales of the Guna and Darien and the Mosquito Coast, tales that were enjoyed by all. But Dampier had, by this point, signed up to sail with the Spanish expedition. He was going to serve as second mate of the Dove. But really, his job wasn't to serve as an officer on board, but more of a marketing executive. In the same way that he had leveraged his sudden fame into a 10% share in that theater company, now he was going around telling everybody, exciting and fanciful tales, and then mentioning off the cuff, you know, hey, I'm doing a new thing. You should definitely invest. Dampier is going to be the public face of this voyage. But we will talk more about the rest of the crew next time. However, today, I want to end with a crewman that stands out in the record. While the Dove and the James were off on their mission in Holland, Construction was well underway on the flagship for this Spanish expedition, a ship they were to call the Charles II. We are going to talk a lot more about the Charles II next time. It's a ship that's going to concern us a great deal moving forward. But for now, she is still under construction, so we'll hold off on that. Instead, I want to look at the men who were brought in to command this flagship. The fleet had an admiral attached, a man named Arthur O'Brien. He was going to command the fleet from the flagship, Charles II. Below him, there was the flag captain. A, a flag captain is a captain of a flagship under the admiral, but still technically in charge of his own vessel. That was a man named Robert Strong, who had served alongside William Phipps on the last expedition of this kind. Both of those men were skilled and hardy mariners, but they brought in a first mate for Charles II that was something of a special case, kind of a ringer. He was a former Navy man, a gunner and a master's mate who had served with distinction and earned honors in two major naval battles. There were, however, a few disturbing, although probably false, rumors that this particular former Navy man engaged in less-than-scrupulous trading in the year or so since he left the Navy. The word 
interloper had been thrown around more than once, but I mean, there's no evidence, so who's to say? And even if that were true, is it really that bad? I mean, it's a mark of grit and determination. Just the kind of traits that they were looking for in a first mate. See, this operation had a lot of men involved that were in a similar situation. They had been privateers and interlopers and treasure hunters and salvagers. Some of them smugglers, some of them pirates. That's the kind of man that was needed for a job like this. A voyage to the West Indies to hunt treasure and trade with Spain. After all, it was men like that who sailed under Francis Drake. It was men like that who provided the capital for this very mission. Those kind of men were almost folk heroes in the English imagination. But they were an unpredictable lot. You're going to need somebody in a position of command who knows how to deal with that sort. Now, on a traditional English vessel, there wasn't a position that equated to a pirate quartermaster. You know, a, a representative of the crew who had equal power to the captain. That position didn't exist. But as first mate, that is essentially the job that Henry Every was hired to do on the Spanish expedition. However, to the horror of every single man and woman who had put their money up for this expedition, that's exactly what Henry Every was going to do. Next time we're going to continue this story, following William Dampier and Henry Every as they embark on the Spanish expedition. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. Everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon, everybody who has recommended this show, and everybody who has given us a rating or a review wherever you listen to the show, you all make this possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G dot com dot A-U. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight